Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. How could Freddie Threepwood possibly raise 3,000 pounds to help a dear relative? P.G. Woodhouse Today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Many, many thanks to all of our listeners and supporting members who help to keep us going. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please become a supporting member. By making a monthly donation of just $5.00, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you get a $17 discount. It's a seriously great deal, and helps us to keep doing what we're doing. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. We'd like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. Today's story is by P.G. Woodhouse and is the beginning of the novel Leave It to Smith, The P is Silent, part two of the Blanding's Castle series. The first in the series was Something New, where we met Lord Emsworth, Freddie Threepwood, Beach, Baxter, and many others. I've tried to keep the character voices consistent with Something New, which we did back in 2014. A note on the title... Woodhouse has placed the letter P in front of the name Smith, for reasons which will be explained later on. Now, in the audiobook format, you don't see that and miss out on the joke, and so rather than try to enunciate Smith for the audiobook version, I'll add the term the P is silent when it seems appropriate. This is simply an attempt to try to convey in audio form the joke that those who are reading visually get to enjoy. Now for our personal moment. This week we had one of Goldie's choir concerts. She's in eighth grade. And it is amazing. Once the beginners, you know, they're beginners, they're starting. But when you get the eighth graders who are really, you know, musically motivated and have a little bit of training, man, it was just incredible. He had them do some chamber music, which was just gorgeous. I can't believe the sound that can come out of these 8th graders. There's children. It was amazing. It was a great experience for those kids. I mean, so fun to sing together and make music together. It was, it was a neat experience. We are also very excited to go see Emma, the new Emma movie, on Sunday. Uh, the kids are all excited to go. And it's just so amazing to me that all of our kids are excited to go see these things. Uh, it's so neat to take all of them to go see film versions of, you know, Little Women or the National Theatre Shakespeare or a Jane Austen movie, um, because we we love these films and we integrate them into our family culture. Every day, somebody quotes something from one of our favorite films or movies or miniseries like Pride and Prejudice, or they quote Hamlet or the RSC version of Nicholas Nickleby. We did it today. We do it all the time. 
There's a learning curve. Whoever ever eventually joins our family, there's quite a learning curve. They're going to have to watch a lot of stuff and hopefully, you know, be okay with it. But, uh, you know, there's nothing that compares to... uh, It's just so wonderful having everybody kind of be on board uh, when we go watch these kind of, you know, literary shows. It's really a lot of fun. So, that's our personal moment. And now... Leave it to Smith. The P is Silent. Part 1 of 10 by P.G. Woodhouse. Chapter 1. Dark Plottings at Blanding's Castle At the open window of the great library of Blanding's Castle, drooping like a wet sock, as was his habit when he had nothing to prop his spine against, the Earl of Emsworth, that amiable and bone-headed peer, stood gazing out over his domain. It was a lovely morning, and the air was fragrant with gentle summer scents. Yet in his lordship's pale blue eyes there was a look of melancholy. His brow was furrowed, his mouth peevish, and this was only the more strange— in that he was normally as happy as only a fluffy-minded man with excellent health and a large income can be. A writer, describing Blanding's Castle in a magazine article, had once said, "'Tiny mosses have grown in the cavities of the stones, until, viewed near at hand, the place seems shaggy with vegetation.' Would not have been a bad description of the proprietor.' Fifty-odd years of serene and unruffled placidity had given Lord Emsworth a curiously moss-covered look. Very few things had the power to disturb him. Even his youngest son, the Honourable Freddy Threepwood, could only do it occasionally. Yet now he was sad, and, not to make a mystery of it any longer, the reason of his sorrow was the fact that he had mislaid his glasses, and without them he was as blind— to use his own neat simile, as a bat. He was keenly aware of the sunshine that poured down on his gardens, and was yearning to pop out and potter among the flowers he loved. But no man, pop he never so wisely, can hope to potter with any good result if the world is a mere blur. The door behind him opened, and Beach the butler entered, a dignified procession of one. "'Who's that?' inquired Lord Emsworth, spinning on his axis. "'It is I, your lordship, Beach. Have you found them?' "'Not yet, your lordship,' sighed the butler. "'You can't have looked. I have searched assiduously, your lordship, but without avail. Thomas and Charles also announce non-success. Stokes has not yet made his report. "'Ah!' "'I am redispatching Thomas and Charles to your lordship's bedroom,' said the master of the hunt. "'I trust that their efforts will be rewarded.' Beach withdrew, and Lord Emsworth turned to the window again. The scene that spread itself beneath him, though he was unfortunately not able to see it, was a singularly beautiful one, for the castle, which is one of the oldest inhabited houses in England— stands upon a knoll of rising ground at the southern end of the celebrated Vale of Blandings in the county of Shropshire. Away in the blue distance, wooded hills ran down to where the Severn gleamed like an unsheathed sword, 
while up from the river rolling parkland, mounting and dipping, surged in a green wave almost to the castle walls, breaking on the terraces in a many-coloured flurry of flowers, as it reached the spot where the province of Angus Macalester, his lordship's head gardener, began. The day, being June the 30th, which is the very high-tide time of summer flowers, the immediate neighbourhood of the castle was ablaze with roses, pinks, pansies, carnations, hollyhocks, columbines, larkspurs, London pride, Canterbury bells, and a multitude of other choice blooms, of which only Angus could have told you the names. A conscientious man was Angus, and in spite of being a good deal hampered by Lord Emsworth's amateur assistance, he showed excellent results in his department. In his beds there was much at which to point with pride, little to view with concern. Scarcely had Beach removed himself when Lord Emsworth was called upon to turn again. The door had opened for the second time, and a young man in a beautifully cut suit of grey flannel was standing in the doorway. He had a long and vacant face, topped by shining hair brushed back and heavy brilliantined, after the prevailing mode, and he was standing on one leg, for Freddy Threepwood was seldom completely at his ease in his parents' presence. "'Hello, Governor. Well, Frederick?' It would be paltering with the truth to say that Lord Emsworth's greeting was a warm one. It lacked the note of true affection. A few weeks before he had had to pay a matter of five hundred pounds to settle certain racing debts for his offspring.' and while this had not actually dealt an irretrievable blow at his bank account, it had undeniably tended to diminish Freddy's charm in his eyes. "'Here you've lost your glasses, Governor. That is so. Nuisance, what? Undeniably. Ought to have a spare pair. I have broken my spare pair. Tough luck. And lost the other. And, as you say, lost the other. Have you looked for the bally things? I have.' "'Must be somewhere, I mean. Quite possibly.' "'Where?' asked Freddy, warming to his work. "'Did you see them last?' "'Go away,' said Lord Emsworth, on whom his child's conversation had begun to exercise an oppressive effect. "'Eh? Go away.' "'Go away? Yes, go away. Right ho.' The door closed. His lordship returned to the window once more. He had been standing there some few minutes, when one of those miracles occurred which happen in libraries. Without sound or warning, a section of books started to move away from the parent body, and, swinging out in a solid chunk into the room, showed a glimpse of a small, study-like apartment. A young man in spectacles came noiselessly through, and the books returned to their place. The contrast between Lord Emsworth and the newcomer, as they stood there, was striking, almost dramatic. Lord Emsworth was so acutely spectacle-less, Rupert Baxter, his secretary, so pronouncedly spectacled. It was his spectacles that struck you first as you saw the man. They gleamed efficiently at you. If you had a guilty conscience, they pierced you through and through. And even if your conscience was one hundred percent pure, you could not ignore them. Here, you said to yourself, is an efficient young man in spectacles. In describing Rupert Baxter as efficient, 
you did not overestimate him. He was essentially that. Technically, but a salaried subordinate, he had become by degrees, owing to the limp amiability of his employer, the real master of the house. He was the brains of Blandings, the man at the switch, the person in charge, and the pilot, so to speak, who weathered the storm. Lord Emsworth left everything to Baxter, only asking to be allowed to potter in peace, and Baxter, more than equal to the task, shouldered it without wincing. Having got within range, Baxter coughed, and Lord Emsworth, recognising the sound, wheeled round with a faint flicker of hope. It might be that even this apparently insoluble problem of the missing pince-nez would yield before the other's efficiency. "'Baxter, my dear fellow, I've lost my glasses! My glasses! I have mislaid them! I cannot think where they have gone to! You haven't seen them anywhere by any chance?' "'Yes, Lord Emsworth,' replied the secretary, quietly equal to the crisis. "'They are hanging down your back.' "'Down my back? I bless my soul!' His lordship tested the statement and found it, like all Baxter's statements, accurate. "'I bless my soul, so they are. Do you know, Baxter? I really believe I must be growing absent-minded.' He hauled in the slack, secured the pince-nez, adjusted them beamingly. His irritability had vanished like the dew off one of his roses. "'Thank you, Baxter, thank you. You are invaluable.' And with a radiant smile, Lord Emsworth made buoyantly for the door en route for God's heir and the society of McAllister. The movement drew from Baxter another cough, a sharp, peremptory cough this time, and his lordship paused, reluctantly, like a dog whistled back from the chase. A cloud fell over the sunniness of his mood. Admirable as Baxter was in so many respects, he had a tendency to worry him at times, and something told Lord Emsworth that he was going to worry him now. "'The car will be at the door,' said Baxter, with quiet firmness, "'at two sharp.' "'The car? What car?' "'The car to take you to the station.' "'Station? What station?' Rupert Baxter preserved his calm. There were times when he found his employer a little trying, but he never showed it. "'You have perhaps forgotten, Lord Emsworth, "'that you arranged with Lady Constance to go to London this afternoon.' "'Go to London?' gasped Lord Emsworth, appalled. "'In weather like this, with a thousand things to attend to in the garden? "'What a perfectly preposterous notion! "'Why should I go to London? I hate London!' "'You arranged with Lady Constance that you would give Mr. McTodd lunch tomorrow at your club.' "'Who the devil is Mr. McTodd?' "'The well-known Canadian poet. Never heard of him.' Lady Constance has long been a great admirer of his work. She wrote, inviting him, should he ever come to England, to pay a visit to Blandings. He is now in London, and is to come down tomorrow for two weeks. Lady Constance's suggestion was that, as a compliment to Mr. McTodd's eminence in the world of literature, you should meet him in London and bring him back here yourself. Lord Emsworth remembered now. He also remembered that this positively infernal scheme had not been his sister Constance's in the first place. It was Baxter who made the suggestion, and Constance had approved.
He made use of the recovered pince-nez to glower through them at his secretary, and not for the first time in recent months was aware of a feeling that this fellow Baxter was becoming a dashed infliction. Baxter was getting above himself, throwing his weight about, making himself a confounded nuisance. He wished he could get rid of the man, but where could he find an adequate successor? That was the trouble. With all his drawbacks, Baxter was efficient. Nevertheless, for a moment, Lord Emsworth toyed with the pleasant dream of dismissing him. And it is possible, such was his exasperation, that he might on this occasion have done something practical in that direction, had not the library door at this moment opened for the third time to admit yet another intruder, at the sight of whom his lordship's militant mood faded weakly. "'Oh, hello, Connie,' he said guiltily, like a small boy caught in a jam cupboard. Somehow his sister always had this effect upon him. Of all those who had entered the library that morning, the new arrival was the best worth looking at. Lord Emsworth was tall and lean and scraggy, Rupert Baxter thick-set and handicapped by that vaguely grubby appearance which is presented by swarthy young men of a bad complexion, and even Beach, though dignified, and Freddy, though slim, would never have got far in a beauty competition. But Lady Constance Keeble really took the eye. She was a strikingly handsome woman in the middle forties. She had a fair, broad brow, teeth of a perfect even whiteness, and the carriage of an empress. Her eyes were large and grey and gentle, and incidentally misleading, for gentle was hardly the adjective which anybody who knew her would have applied to Lady Constance, though genial enough when she got her way— on the rare occasions when people attempted to thwart her, she was apt to comport herself in a manner reminiscent of Cleopatra on one of the latter's bad mornings. "'I hope I am not disturbing you,' said Lady Constance, with a bright smile. "'I just came in to tell you to be sure not to forget, Clarence, that you are going to London this afternoon to meet Mr. Todd.' "'I was just telling Lord Emsworth,' said Baxter." "'that the car would be at the door at two. "'Thank you, Mr. Baxter. "'Of course I might have known that you would not forget. "'You are so wonderfully capable. "'I don't know what in the world we would do without you.' "'The efficient Baxter bowed. "'But though gratified, he was not overwhelmed by the tribute. "'The same thought had often occurred to him independently. "'If you will excuse me,' he said, "'I have one or two things to attend to.' "'Certainly, Mr. Baxter.' The efficient one withdrew through the door in the bookshelf. He realised that his employer was in a fractious mood, but knew that he was leaving him in capable hands. Lord Emsworth turned from the window, out of which he had been gazing with a plaintive detachment. "'Look here, Connie,' he grumbled feebly. "'You know I hate literary fellows.' "'It's bad enough having them in the house, "'but when it comes to going to London to fetch them, "'He shuffled morosely. "'It was a perpetual grievance of his, "'this practice of his sisters "'of collecting literary celebrities "'and dumping them down in the home "'for indeterminate visits. "'You never knew when she was going to spring another on you. "'Already, since the beginning of the year, "'he had suffered from around a dozen of the species "'at brief intervals.' 
and at this very moment his life was being poisoned by the fact that Blandings was sheltering a certain Miss Eileen Peavy, the mere thought of whom was enough to turn the sunshine off as with a tap. "'Can't stand literary fellows,' proceeded his lordship. "'Never could. And by Jove, literary females are worse. Miss Peavy—' Here words temporarily failed the owner of Blandings. "'Miss Peavy,' he resumed after an eloquent pause, "'Who is Miss Peavy?' "'My dear Clarence,' replied Lady Constance tolerantly, "'for the fine morning had made her mild and amiable. "'If you do not know that Eileen is one of the leading poetesses of the younger school, "'you must be very ignorant. "'I don't mean that. "'I know she writes poetry. "'I mean, who is she? "'You suddenly produced her here like a rabbit out of a hat,' said his lordship. "'in a tone of strong resentment. "'Where did you find her?' "'I first made Eileen's acquaintance on an Atlantic liner "'when Joe and I were coming back from our trip round the world. "'She was very kind to me when I was feeling the motion of the vessel. "'If you mean what is her family, "'I think Eileen told me once that she was connected with the Rutlandshire Peavies. "'Never heard of them,' snapped Lord Emsworth. "'and if they're anything like Miss Peavy, God help Rutlandshire!' Tranquil as Lady Constance's mood was this morning, an ominous stoniness came into her grey eyes at these words, and there is little doubt that in another instant she would have discharged at her mutinous brother one of those shattering comebacks from which he had been celebrated in the family from nursery days onward. But at this juncture— the efficient Baxter appeared again through the bookshelf. "'Excuse me,' said Baxter, securing attention with a flash of his spectacles. "'I forgot to mention, Lord Emsworth, that to suit everybody's convenience, I have arranged that Miss Halliday shall call to see you at your club tomorrow after lunch.' "'Good Lord, Baxter!' the harassed peer started as if he had been bitten in the leg. "'Who's Miss Halliday?' "'Not another literary female!' "'Miss Halliday is the young lady who is coming to Blandings "'to catalogue the library.' "'Catalogue the library? "'What does it want cataloguing for?' "'It has not been done since the year 1885.' "'Well, and look how splendidly we've got along without it!' "'said Lord Emsworth acutely. "'Don't be so ridiculous, Clarence,' said Lady Constance, annoyed. "'The catalogue of a great library like this must be brought up to date.' "'She moved to the door. "'I do wish you would try to wake up and take an interest in things. "'If it wasn't for Mr. Baxter, I don't know what would happen.' "'And with a beaming glance of approval at her ally, she left the room. "'Baxter, coldly austere, returned to the subject under discussion.' "'I have written to Miss Halliday, suggesting two-thirty as a suitable hour for the interview. "'But look here! You will wish to see her before definitely confirming the engagement.' "'Yes, but look here! I wish you wouldn't go tying me up with all these appointments. "'I thought that as you were going to London to meet Mr. McTodd— "'But I'm not going to London to meet Mr. McTodd!' cried Lord Emsworth, with weak fury. "'It's out of the question. I can't possibly leave Blandings. The weather may break at any moment. 
I don't want to miss a day of it. The arrangements are all made. Send the fellow a wire, unavoidably detained. I could not take the responsibility for such a course myself, said Baxter coldly. But possibly if you were to make the suggestion to Lady Constance— Oh, dash it! said Lord Emsworth unhappily, at once realizing the impossibility of the scheme. Oh, well, if I've got to go, I've got to go, he said after a gloomy pause. But to leave my garden and stew in London at this time of the year! There seemed nothing further to say on the subject. He took off his glasses, polished them, put them on again, and shuffled to the door. After that, he reflected, even though the car was coming for him at two, at least he had the morning, and he proposed to make the most of it. But his first careless rapture at the prospect of pottering among his flowers was dimmed, and would not be recaptured. He did not entertain any project so mad as the idea of defying his sister Constance, but he felt extremely bitter about the whole affair. Confound Constance! Dash Baxter! Miss Peavy! The door closed behind Lord Emsworth. Lady Constance, meanwhile, proceeding downstairs, had reached the big hall, when the door of the smoking-room opened and a head popped out, a round, grizzled head with a healthy pink face attached to it. Connie, said the head. Lady Constance halted. Yes, Joe? Come in here a minute, said the head. Want to speak to you? Lady Constance went into the smoking-room. It was large and cosily book-lined, and its window looked out onto an Italian garden. A wide fireplace occupied nearly the whole of one side of it, and in front of this, his legs spread to an invisible blaze, Mr. Joseph Keeble had already taken his stand. His manner was bluff, but an acute observer might have detected embarrassment in it. "'What is it, Joe?' asked Lady Constance, and smiled pleasantly at her husband. When, two years previously, she had married this elderly widower, of whom the world knew nothing beyond the fact that he had amassed a large fortune in South African diamond mines, there had not been wanting cynics to set the match down as one of convenience, a purely business arrangement, by which Mr. Keeble exchanged his money for Lady Constance's social position. Such was not the case. It had been a genuine marriage of affection on both sides. Mr. Keeble worshipped his wife, and she was devoted to him, though never foolishly indulgent. They were a happy and united couple. Mr. Keeble cleared his throat. He seemed to find some difficulty in speaking, and when he spoke it was not on the subject which he had intended to open, but on one which had already been worn out in previous conversations. "'Connie, I've been thinking about that necklace again.' Lady Constance laughed. "'Oh, don't be silly, Joe. You haven't called me into this stuffy room on a lovely morning like this to talk about that for the hundredth time. Well, you know, there is no sense in taking risks. Don't be absurd. What risks can there be? There was a burglary over at Winston Court, not ten miles from here, only a day or two ago. Don't be so fussy, Joe.' "'That necklace cost nearly twenty thousand pounds,' said Mr. Keeble, in the reverent voice in which men of business traditions speak of large sums. "'I know,' 
It ought to be in the bank. Once and for all, Joe, said Lady Constance, losing her amiability and becoming suddenly imperious and Cleopatrine. I will not keep that necklace in a bank. What on earth is the use of having a beautiful necklace if it is lying in the strong room of a bank all the time? There is a county ball coming on, and the bachelor's ball after that, and, well, I need it. I will send the thing to the bank when we pass through London on our way to Scotland, but not till then. And I do wish you would stop worrying me about it. There was a silence. Mr. Keeble was regretting now that his unfortunate poltroonery had stopped him from tackling, in a straightforward and manly fashion, the really important matter which was weighing on his mind. For he perceived that his remarks about the necklace, eminently sensible though they were, had marred the genial mood in which his wife had begun this interview. It was going to be more difficult now than ever to approach the main issue. Still, ruffled though she might be, the thing had to be done, for it involved a matter of finance, and in matters of finance Mr. Keeble was no longer a free agent. He and Lady Constance had a mutual banking account, and it was she who supervised the spending of it. This was an arrangement, subsequently regretted by Mr. Keeble, which had been come to in the early days of the honeymoon, when men are apt to do foolish things. Mr. Keeble coughed, not the sharp, efficient cough which we have heard Rupert Baxter uttering in the library, but a feeble, strangled thing, like the bleat of a diffident sheep. "'Connie,' he said, "'er, uh, Connie,' at the words, a sort of cold film seemed to come over Lady Constance's eyes, for some sixth sense told her what subject it was— it was now about to be introduced. "'Connie, I... Uh, had a letter from Phyllis this morning.' Lady Constance said nothing. Her eyes gleamed for an instant, then became frozen again. Her intuition had not deceived her. Into the married life of this happy couple, only one shadow had intruded itself up to the present— but unfortunately it was a shadow of considerable proportions, a kind of super-shadow, and its effect had been chilling. It was Phyllis, Mr. Keeble's stepdaughter, who had caused it, by the simple process of jilting the rich and suitable young man whom Lady Constance had attached to her, rather in the manner of a conjurer forcing a card upon his victim— and running off and marrying a far from rich and quite unsuitable person, of whom all that seemed to be known was that his name was Jackson. Mr. Keeble, whose simple creed was that Phyllis could do no wrong, had been prepared to accept the situation philosophically, but his wife's wrath had been deep and enduring, so much so that the mere mentioning of the girl's name must be accounted to him for a brave deed— Lady Constance having specifically stated that she never wished to hear it again. Keenly alive to this prejudice of hers, Mr. Keeble stopped after making his announcement, and had to rattle his keys in his pocket in order to acquire the necessary courage to continue. He was not looking at his wife, but he knew just how forbidding her expression must be. This task of his was no easy, congenial task for a pleasant summer morning, 
she says in her letter, proceeded Mr. Keeble, his eyes on the carpet and his cheeks a deeper pink, that young Jackson has got the chance of buying a big farm, in Lincolnshire, I think she said, if she can raise three thousand pounds. He paused and stole a glance at his wife. It was as he had feared. She had congealed. Like some spell, the name Jackson had apparently turned her to marble. It was like the Pygmalion and Galatea business working the wrong way round. She was presumably breathing, but there was no sign of it. "'So I was just thinking,' said Mr. Keeble, producing another obligato on the keys. "'It just crossed my mind. It isn't as if the thing were a speculation. The place is apparently coining money, present owner only selling because he wants to go abroad. It occurred to me—' "'And they would pay good interest on the loan.' "'What loan?' inquired the statue icily, coming to life. "'Well, what I was thinking, just a suggestion, you know. "'What struck me was that if you were willing, we might— "'Good investment, you know, and nowadays it's deuced hard to find good investments. "'I was thinking that we might lend them the money.' "'He stopped, but he had got the thing out and felt happier.' He rattled his keys again and rubbed the back of his head against the mantelpiece. The friction seemed to give him confidence. "'We had better settle this thing once and for all, Joe,' said Lady Constance. "'As you know, when we were married, I was ready to do everything for Phyllis. I was prepared to be a mother to her. I gave her every chance, took her everywhere, and what happened?' "'Yes, I know, but—' "'But she became engaged to a man with plenty of money—' "'Shocking young ass,' interjected Mr. Keeble, "'perking up for a moment at the recollection of the late lamented, "'whom he had never liked. "'And a rip what's more. I've heard stories. Nonsense. "'If you're going to believe all the gossip you hear about people, "'nobody would be safe. "'He was a delightful young man, "'and he would have made Phyllis perfectly happy. "'Instead of marrying him—' "'She chose to go off with this Jackson.' "'Lady Constance's voice quivered. "'Greater scorn could hardly have been packed into two syllables. "'After what has happened, "'I certainly intend to have nothing more to do with her. "'I shall not lend them a penny. "'So please do not let us continue this discussion any longer. "'I hope I am not an unjust woman, "'but I must say that I consider—' "'After the way Phyllis behaved—' "'The sudden opening of the door caused her to break off. "'Lord Emsworth, mould-stained and wearing a deplorable old jacket, "'pottered into the room. "'He peered benevolently at his sister and his brother-in-law, "'but seemed unaware that he was interrupting a conversation. "'Gardening is a fine art,' he murmured. "'Connie, have you seen a book called Gardening as a Fine Art?' "'I was reading it in here last night, gardening as a fine art. "'That is the title. Now where can it have got to?' "'His dreamy eye flitted to and fro. "'I want to show it to McAllister. "'There is a passage in it that directly refutes his anarchistic views on—' "'It is probably on one of the shelves,' said Lady Constance shortly. "'On one of the shelves?' said Lord Emsworth. 
obviously impressed by this bright suggestion. "'Why, of course, to be sure!' Mr. Keeble was rattling his keys moodily. A mutinous expression was on his pink face. These moments of rebellion did not come to him very often, for he loved his wife with a dog-like affection, and had grown accustomed to being ruled by her. But now resentment filled him. She was unreasonable, he considered. She ought to have realised how strongly he felt about poor little Phyllis. It was too infernally cold-blooded to abandon the poor child like an old shoe, simply because— "'Are you going?' he asked, observing his wife moving to the door. "'Yes, I am going into the garden,' said Lady Constance. "'Why? Was there anything else you wanted to talk to me about?' "'No,' said Mr. Keeble despondently. "'Oh, no.' Lady Constance left the room, and a deep masculine silence fell. Mr. Keeble rubbed the back of his head meditatively against the mantelpiece, and Lord Emsworth scratched among the bookshelves. "'Clarence!' said Mr. Keeble suddenly. An idea, one may almost say an inspiration, had come to him. "'Eh?' responded his lordship absently. He had found his book and was turning its pages, absorbed. "'Clarence, can you—' "'Angus McAllister,' observed Lord Emsworth bitterly, "'is an obstinate, stiff-necked son of Belial. "'The writer of this book distinctly states in so many words, "'Clarence, can you lend me three thousand pounds on good security "'and keep it dark from Connie?' "'Lord Emsworth blinked. "'Keep something dark from Connie?' "'He raised his eyes from his book.' in order to peer at this visionary with a gentle pity. "'My dear fellow, it can't be done. "'She would never know. "'I will tell you why I want this money.' "'Money?' Lord Emsworth's eye had become vacant again. He was reading once more. "'Money? "'Money? "'My dear fellow, money? "'Money? "'What money?' "'If I have said once,' declared Lord Emsworth, "'That Angus McAllister is all wrong on the subject of hollyhocks. "'I've said it a hundred times. "'Let me explain. "'This three thousand pounds—' "'My dear fellow, no, 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 it was like you,' "'said his lordship with a vague heartiness. "'It was like you, good and generous, to make this offer. "'But I have ample, thank you, ample. "'I don't need three thousand pounds. "'You don't understand.' I— No, 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 but I am very much obliged all the same. It was very kind of you, my dear fellow, to give me the opportunity. Very kind. Very, very kind. Proceeded his lordship, trailing to the door and reading as he went. Oh, very, very, very. The door closed behind him. Oh, damn! said Mr. Keeble. He sank into a chair— in a state of profound dejection. He thought of the letter he would have to write to Phyllis. Poor little Phyllis. He would have to tell her what she asked could not be managed. And why, thought Mr. Keeble, sourly, as he rose from his seat and went to the writing-table, could it not be managed? Simply because he was a weak-kneed, spineless creature who was afraid of a pair of grey eyes that had a tendency to freeze? My dear Phyllis, he wrote. Here he stopped. How on earth was he to put it? What a letter to have to write! Mr. Keeble placed his head between his hands and groaned aloud. 
"'Hello, Uncle Joe!' The letter-writer, turning sharply, was aware, without pleasure, of his nephew Frederick, standing beside his chair. He eyed him resentfully, for he was not only exasperated, but startled. He had not heard the door open. It was as if the smooth-haired youth had popped up out of a trap. "'Came in through the window!' explained the Honourable Freddy. "'I say, Uncle Joe!' "'Well, what is it?' "'I say, Uncle Joe,' said Freddy, "'can you lend me a thousand quid?' Mr. Keeble uttered a yelp like a pinched Pomeranian. As Mr. Keeble, red-eyed and overwrought, rose slowly from his chair and began to swell in ominous silence, his nephew raised his hand appealingly. It began to occur to the Honourable Freddy that he had perhaps not led up to his request with the maximum of smooth tact. "'Half a jiffy,' he entreated. "'I say, don't go off in the deep end for just a second. I can explain.' Mr. Keeble's feelings expressed themselves in a loud snort. "'Explain.' "'Well, I can. Whole trouble was, I started at the wrong end. Shouldn't have sprung it on you like that. The fact is, Uncle Joe, I've got a scheme.' I give you my word that if you'll only put off having apoplexy for about three minutes, said Freddy, scanning his fermenting relative with some anxiety, I can shove you on to a good thing. Honestly, I can. And all I say is, if this scheme I'm talking about is worth a thousand quid to you, will you slip it across? I'm game to spill it and leave it to your honesty to cash up if the thing looks good to you. A thousand pounds? Nice round sum. "'urged Freddy ingratiatingly. "'Why?' demanded Mr. Keeble, now somewhat recovered. "'Do you want a thousand pounds?' "'Well, who doesn't, if it comes to that?' said Freddy. "'But I don't mind telling you my special reason for wanting it at just this moment, "'if you'll swear to keep it under your hat as far as the Governor is concerned. "'If you mean that you wish me not to repeat to your father anything you may tell me in confidence,' "'Naturally, I shall not dream of doing such a thing.' Freddy looked puzzled. His was no lightning brain. "'Can't quite work that out,' he confessed. "'Do you mean that you will tell him, or you won't?' "'I will not tell him.' "'Good Uncle Joe,' said Freddy, relieved. "'A topper. I've always said so. "'Well, look here. You know all the trouble there's been "'about my dropping a bit on the races lately?' "'I do. "'Between ourselves,' I dropped about five hundred of the best, and I just want to ask you one simple question. Why did I drop it? Because you were an infernal young ass. Well, yes, agreed Freddy, having considered the point. You might put it that way, of course, but why was I an ass? Good God! exclaimed the exasperated Mr. Keeble. Am I a psychoanalyst? I mean to say, if you come right down to it, I lost all that stuff— "'simply because I was on the wrong side of the fence. "'It's a mug's game, betting on horses. "'The only way to make money is to be a bookie. "'And that's what I'm going to do, "'if you'll part with that thousand. "'Pal of mine, who is up at Oxford with me, "'is in a bookie's office, "'and their game to take me in, too, "'if I can put up a thousand quid. "'Only I must let them know quick, "'because the offer's not going to be open forever. "'You've no notion what a deuce of a lot of competition "'there is for that sort of job.' Mr. Keeble, who had been endeavouring with some energy to get a word in during this harangue, now contrived to speak. 
"'And do you seriously suppose that I would—' "'But what's the use of wasting time talking? "'I have no means of laying my hands on the sum you mention. "'If I had—' said Mr. Keeble wistfully. "'If I had—' "'And as I strayed to the letter on the desk, "'the letter which had got as far as my dear Phyllis, "'and stuck there, "'Freddy gazed upon him with cordial sympathy. "'Oh, I know how you're situated, Uncle Joe, "'and I'm dashed sorry for you. "'I mean, Aunt Constance and all that. "'What?' Irksome as Mr. Keeble sometimes found the peculiar condition of his financial arrangements, he had always had the consolation of supposing that they were a secret between his wife and himself. "'What do you mean?' "'Well, I know that Aunt Constance keeps an eye on the doubloons and checks the outgoings pretty narrowly, and I think it's a dashed shame that she won't unbuckle to help poor old Phyllis. "'A girl,' said Freddy, "'I always liked. Bally shame!' "'Why the dickens shouldn't she marry that fellow Jackson? "'I mean, love's love,' said Freddy, who felt strongly on this point. "'Mr. Keeble was making curious gulping noises. "'Perhaps I ought to explain,' said Freddy, "'that I was having a quiet after-breakfast smoke outside the window there, "'and heard the whole thing. "'I mean, you and Aunt Constance going to the mat about poor old Phyllis, "'and you trying to bite the governor's ear and so forth.' Mr. Keeble bobbled for a while. "'You—you listened!' he managed to ejaculate at length. "'And dashed lucky for you,' said Freddy, with a cordiality unimpaired by the frankly unfriendly stare under which a nicer-minded youth would have withered. "'Dashed lucky for you that I did, because I've got a scheme.' Mr. Keeble's estimate of his young relative's sagacity was not a high one, and it is doubtful whether— had the latter caught him in a less despondent mood, he would have wasted time in inquiring into the details of this scheme, the mention of which had been playing in and out of Freddy's conversation like a will-o'-the-wisp. But such was his reduced state at the moment that a reluctant gleam of hope crept into his troubled eye. "'A scheme? Do you mean a scheme to help me out of—out of my difficulty?' "'Absolutely!' "'You want the best seats? We have them. "'I mean,' Freddy went on in interpretation of these peculiar words, "'you want three thousand quid, and I can show you how to get it.' "'Then kindly do so,' said Mr. Keeble, "'and having opened the door, peered cautiously out, and closed it again. "'He crossed the room and shut the window. "'Makes it a bit foggy, but perhaps you're right,' said Freddy, eyeing these manoeuvres. "'Well, it's like this, Uncle Joe. "'You remember what you were saying to Aunt Constance "'about some bird being apt to sneak up and pinch her necklace?' "'I do. "'Well, why not? "'What do you mean? "'I mean, why don't you?' "'Mr. Keeble regarded his nephew with unconcealed astonishment. "'He had been prepared for imbecility, "'but this exceeded his expectations. "'Steal my wife's necklace? "'That's it.' "'Frightfully quick you are, getting on to an idea. "'Pinch Aunt Connie's necklace, for mark you,' continued Freddy, "'so far forgetting the respect due from a nephew "'as to tap his uncle sharply on the chest. "'If a husband pinches anything from a wife, it isn't stealing. "'That's law. I found that out from a movie I saw in town.' "'The Honourable Freddy was a great student of the movies.' He could tell a super-film from a super-super-film at a glance, 
and what he did not know about erring wives and licentious clubmen could have been written in a subtitle. "'Are you insane?' growled Mr. Keeble. "'It wouldn't be hard for you to get hold of it, and once you'd got it, everybody would be happy. I mean, all you'd have to do would be to draw a cheque to pay for another one for Aunt Connie, which would make her perfectly chirpy, as well as putting you one up, if you follow me. Then you would have the other necklace, the pinched one, to play about with. See what I mean? You could sell it privily, and by stealth, ship Phyllis her three thousand, push across my thousand, and what was left over would be a nice little private account for you to tuck away somewhere, where Aunt Connie wouldn't know anything about it. And a dashed useful thing, said Freddy, to have up your sleeve in case of emergencies. Are you— Mr. Keeble was on the point of repeating his previous remark, when suddenly there came the realization that, despite all preconceived opinions, the young man was anything but insane. The scheme, at which he had been prepared to scoff, was so brilliant yet simple that it seemed almost incredible that its sponsor could have worked it out for himself. "'Not my own,' said Freddy, modestly, as if in answer to the thought. "'Saw much the same thing in a movie once. Only there the fellow, if I remember, wanted to do down an insurance company, and it wasn't a necklace that he pinched but bonds. Still, the principle's the same. Well, how do we go, Uncle Joe? How about it? Is that worth a thousand quid or not?' Even though he had seen in person to the closing of the door in the window— Mr. Keeble could not refrain from a conspirator-like glance about him. They had been speaking with lowered voices, but now words came from him in an almost inaudible whisper. Could it really be done? Is it feasible? Feasible? I dash it! Well, the dickens is there to stop you! You could do it in a second! And the beauty of the whole thing is, if you were copped, nobody could say a word— "'because husband pinching from wife isn't stealing. "'Law!' "'The statement that, in the circumstances, "'indicated nobody could say a word, "'seemed to Mr. Keeble so at variance with the facts "'that he was compelled to challenge it. "'Your aunt would have a good deal to say,' "'he observed ruefully. "'Eh? "'Oh, yes, I see what you mean. "'Well, you would have to risk that. "'After all, the chances would be dead against her finding out.' "'But she might. "'Oh, well, if you put it like that, I suppose she might. "'Freddy, my boy,' said Mr. Keeble, weakly, "'I daren't do it.' "'The vision of his thousand pounds slipping from his grasp "'so wrought upon Freddy "'that he expressed himself in a manner far from fitting "'in one of his years towards an older man. "'Oh, I say, don't be such a rabbit!' "'Mr. Keeble shook his head. "'No?' he repeated, I daren't. It might have seemed that the negotiations had reached a deadlock, but Freddy, with a thousand pounds in sight, was in far too stimulated a condition to permit so tame an ending to such a promising plot. As he stood there, chafing at his uncle's pusillanimity, an idea was vouchsafed to him. By Jove, I'll tell you what, not so loud— "'moaned the apprehensive Mr. Keeble. "'Not so loud.' "'I'll tell you what,' repeated Freddy in a hoarse whisper. "'How would it be if I 
did the pinching. What? How would it? Would you? Hope, which had vanished from Mr. Keeble's face, came flooding back. My boy, would you really? For a thousand quid, you bet I would. Mr. Keeble clutched at his young relative's hand and gripped it feverishly. Freddy, he said. The moment you place that necklace in my hands, I will give you not a thousand but two thousand pounds. Uncle Joe said, "Freddy, with equal intensity, it's a bet." Mister Keeble mopped at his forehead. "You think you can manage it? Manage it?" Freddy laughed a light laugh. <laughs> "Just watch me." Mister Keeble grasped his hand again with the utmost warmth. "I must go out and get some air," he said. "I'm all upset." May I really leave this matter to you, Freddy? Rather, good. Then tonight I will write to Phyllis and say that I may be able to do what she wishes. Don't say may," said Freddy buoyantly. "The word is will, Bally will. What ho!" Exhilaration is a heady drug, but like other drugs, it has the disadvantage that its stimulating effects seldom last for very long. For perhaps ten minutes after his uncle had left him, Freddy Threepwood lay back in his chair in a sort of ecstasy. He felt strong, vigorous, alert. Then, by degrees, like a chilling wind, doubt began to creep upon him. Faintly at first, then more and more insistently, till by the end of a quarter of an hour, he was in a state of pronounced self-mistrust. Or to put it with less elegance, he was suffering from an exceedingly severe attack of cold feet. The more he contemplated the venture which he had undertaken, the less alluring did it appear to him. His was not a keen imagination, but even he could shape with a gruesome clearness a vision of the frightful bust-up that would ensue should he be detected stealing his aunt Constance's diamond necklace. Common decency would, in such an event. Seal his lips as regarded his uncle Joseph's share in the matter, and even if, as might conceivably happen, common decency failed at the crisis, reason told him that his uncle Joseph would infallibly disclaim any knowledge of or connection with the rash act. And then where would he be? In the soup, undoubtedly, for Freddy could not conceal it from himself. That there was nothing in his previous record to make it seem inconceivable to his nearest and dearest that he should steal the jewellery of a female relative for purely personal ends. The verdict in the event of detection would be one of uncompromising condemnation. And yet he hated the idea of meekly allowing that two thousand pounds to escape from his clutch. A young man's crossroads. The agony of spirit into which these meditations cast him had brought him up with a bound from the comfortable depths of his armchair, and had set him prowling restlessly about the room. His wanderings led him, at this point, to collide somewhat painfully with a long table on which Beach the butler, a tidy soul, was in the habit of arranging in a neat row the daily papers, weekly papers, and magazines which found their way into the castle. The shock had the effect of rousing him from his stupor, and in an absent way he clutched the nearest daily paper, which happened to be the Morning Globe, and returned to his chair 
in the hope of quieting his nerves with a perusal of the racing intelligence. For, though far removed now from any practical share in the doings of the racing world, he still took a faint melancholy interest in ascertaining what Captain Curb, the head lad, little bright eyes and the rest of the newspaper experts, fancied for the day's big event. He lit a cigarette and unfolded the journal. The next moment, instead of passing directly, as was his usual practice, to the last page, which was devoted to sport, he was gazing with a strange dry feeling in his throat at a certain advertisement on page one. It was a well-displayed advertisement, and one that had caught the eye of many other readers of the paper that morning. It was worded to attract attention, and it had achieved its object. But where others who read it had merely smiled and marvelled idly how anybody could spend good money putting nonsense like this in the paper, to Freddy its import was wholly serious. It read to him like the real thing. His motion-picture-trained mind accepted this advertisement at its face value. It ran as follows. Leave it to Smith. Smith will help you. Smith is ready for anything. Do you want someone to manage your affairs, someone to handle your business, someone to take the dog for a run, someone to assassinate your aunt? Smith will do it. Crime not objected to. Whatever job you have to offer, provided it has nothing to do with fish, leave it to Smith. Address applications to R. Smith, the P is silent, Box 365. Leave it to Smith. Freddy laid the paper down with a deep intake of breath. He picked it up again and read the advertisement a second time. Yes, it sounded good. More, it had something of the quality of a direct answer to prayer. Very vividly now, Freddy realized that what he had been wishing for was a partner to share the perils of this enterprise which he had so rashly undertaken. In fact, not so much to share them as to take them off his shoulders altogether. And such a partner he was now in a position to command. Uncle Joe was going to give him two thousand if he brought the thing off. This advertisement fellow would probably be charmed to come in for a few hundred. Two minutes later, Freddy was at the writing desk, scribbling a letter. From time to time he glanced furtively over his shoulder at the door. But the house was still. No footsteps came to interrupt him at his task. Freddy went out into the garden. He had not wandered far— when from somewhere close at hand there was borne to him on the breeze a remark in a high voice about Scottish obstinacy, which could only have proceeded from one source. He quickened his steps. "'Hello, Governor. Well, Frederick?' Freddy shuffled. "'I say, Governor, do you think I might go up to town with you this afternoon?' "'What?' "'Fact is, I ought to see my dentist. Haven't been to him for a deuce of a time.' I cannot see the necessity for you to visit a London dentist. There is an excellent man in Shrewsbury, and you know I have the strongest objection to your going to London. Well, you see, this fellow understands my snappers. Always been to him, I mean to say. Anybody who knows anything about these things will tell you. Greatest mistake 
go buzzing about to different dentists. Already Lord Emsworth's attention was wandering back to the waiting McAllister. Oh, very well, very well. Thanks awfully, Governor. But on one thing I insist, Frederick, I cannot have you loafing about London the whole day. You must catch the 12.50 train back. Right-ho. That'll be all right, Governor. Now listen to reason, McAllister, said his lordship. That is all I ask you to do. Listen to reason. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Leave It to Smith, The Pea is Silent, Part 1 of 10, by P.G. Woodhouse. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.